I'd love to look with you this morning in John chapter 18. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. If not, the words I'm going to read should be on the screen behind me in there in your bulletin. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. And so we're going to transition, if you will, from this section, chapters 13 through 17, which was talking about one 24-hour period. And we were looking at and thinking about each of those weeks as we went through those passages, uh, Jesus' bucket list and what was most on his heart and mind, what he wanted to do just hours before he died. And so now we're kind of transitioning into the beginning of his trial. And as we do that, we're moving closer and closer to his crucifixion and death. So if you would, listen to this. This is God's word, John 18, 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said them to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we spend time diving into this text and thinking about your word, that as we do that together, Lord, there would be more and more of you and less of us in our lives. More of your power, more of your grace, more good news than our agendas and our plans and what we want. And Lord, we ask that because you give us good news and because you are powerful and gracious, that you would change us so that we would want more and more of that. And we pray this for your glory. We're praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Two points this morning I want you to understand as we look at John 18, 1 through 11, two things. First one is this, a missing ear. The second one is an empty cup. So if we understand both of those things, a missing ear and an empty cup, we will understand, at least begin to understand these verses together. Sound good? You with me? Missing ear, empty cup. Let's dive in. Let's start thinking about this missing ear and how we got to this point of seeing this ear that's missing in this passage. So look at verse 1. Here's what happens. Jesus has just finished praying to his father, the thing that we got to eavesdrop on last week, where Jesus is praying for himself, he's praying for his disciples, and he's ultimately praying for us. Like we are the evidence, remember this last week? We are the evidence that Jesus' prayers come true. Because here we are, 2,000 years later, Greenville, North Carolina, we are the ends of the earth. 
that the Bible talks about? After Jesus has prayed to the Father, after he's prayed for us, he goes with his disciples. They somewhat leave Jerusalem, at least a little bit, on a little journey, just two or three hundred yards. They cross this little brook, and they enter into this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a garden that is beautiful. It's a garden that is full of olive trees. It's even a place in which someone had put a press so that if you wanted to gather olive trees and press out the oil, you could do that. It was a place of solace. It was a place of solitude. Jesus went into that garden with his disciples. Now, what's interesting is when you read these first few verses, you see that John doesn't give us any details about what happened in the garden, right? But if you read Matthew's account or Luke's account or Mark's account, we actually find out the details of what happened in the garden. And what we find is that Jesus was again praying to his father. And what we in particular find out is this. Jesus was thinking about the mission of his life through the metaphor of drinking the cup. So in the same way that you and I might think about our lives as running a race, you know, Jesus was thinking about his life, his mission, what he was supposed to do with his life through the metaphor of drinking a cup. Now, John doesn't give us those details because he's focusing our attention on something else. Well, as Jesus was praying in that garden, as Jesus was there with his disciples, as he was thinking about the reality of drinking a cup, Judas was busy doing something else. It's almost like if you were to produce a movie, you would have shown in John's account Jesus with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then you shift cameras to a different place, and Judas is in a different part of town, and Judas is going to gather people to come to meet Jesus with the disciples in the garden. How do we know that Judas knew where to go? Well, verse 2 tells you. He observed that Jesus was there frequently. Isn't that amazing to think about? Here's the guy who is going to betray Jesus. And he had observed Jesus. He had paid attention to the patterns of his life. He had heard a lot of his teaching. And Judas knew, if I can find people to come and arrest this man, I know exactly where to find him. So he gathers a little militia. By the way, it's made up of all kinds of people. Jews, and Gentiles. Gentiles, Roman soldiers, blue collar, white collar, people that are super religious, people that aren't at all. He's gathered all kinds of people in this militia to come and meet Jesus with his disciples at the garden. Now, here's a little bit more interesting information. This little militia that Judas gathered, cobbled together, this little cadre of soldiers, not only did they have torches, but they were weaponized. Did you notice that? They had weapons. And in the ancient world, the word that's used to describe the people that Judas gathered together was a company of potentially 600 people. So how many disciples does Jesus have now? 12 minus 1. What's that? We are awake this morning. Jesus is with maybe 11 other people. We know for sure that he went further into the garden with a smaller number, but perhaps the other disciples were behind. So let's just say there's about 12 people, 15, whatever, and there is a militia coming with maybe up to 600. 
It's a little bizarre, isn't it? Now, the term was also used to describe a number not less than 200. So I think it's safe to say that there were at least 200 people that Judas had gathered together to come and meet Jesus at the garden. And you can imagine when Judas was there with that 200 or more people and Jesus was there with his 10 to 15 that they might have thought Jesus and his disciples, oh man, we must be in some kind of danger, right? Do you all remember the story of Sam Jones this year? You know the guy that owns the barbecue place on Fire Tower right around here? He, he flew to, a, I, think it was a, um, I think it was a barbecue festival in Orlando. He got off the plane, went to the car rental place, went up to the counter to get, to get his car so he could travel and drive where he needed to go for the convention or whatever it was he was going to. And all of a sudden, cars pulled up to the front, screeching, halting. They get out, they come into the car rental place, and they arrest him. Did you hear about this? It was a big thing in Greenville. Yeah. They arrested him. He thought it was a joke. Here he is at the counter. Well, apparently his description fit the description of someone who was, I think, robbed a bank or stole some cars or something. He thought it was a prank. Here he was at the counter, just him and the person behind the counter. And then all of a sudden, the police show up. You know that to some extent he thought, something's going on. Why are these people here? Next thing you know, he's in cuffs in the back seat of a car. Can you imagine Jesus and his disciples with just the few number and this enormous number of people? They thought they were in danger. And then what you have in verses 4 through 8 are the encounter that Jesus has with Judas and the militia. Look at what Jesus says. He comes out to meet them. Look at the beginning of verse 4 and the middle of verse 4. Look at verse 4. Jesus knows everything that's going to happen. And he says to them, who are you seeking? And they respond, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what's Jesus' answer there? What does he say? I am he. You know what it literally says in the original? I am. I am. And when the militia hears that come out of Jesus' mouth, Imagine this scene if you can. Jesus has been praying. Jesus is hanging with his disciples. And next thing you know, 200 weaponized men come to arrest. And in the middle of that, you ask who they're seeking, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and you say, I am? They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. It's why they step back and they fall down. You see, that title, I am, has deep. Deep, religious, supernatural overtones. It goes all the way back to Exodus. Way back when Moses was at the burning bush. And this voice said, I am that I am. Jesus was taking that title to himself. He was saying, I am self-existent. I don't depend on anyone else. I know everything, I have no beginning, I have no ending, everything depends on me. I am dependent on nothing else. He was taking to himself all of the attributes of deity. And the militia, they knew it. 
And they fell down because they understood that he was claiming to be God. So they ask again. Jesus asks again, who are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says the same thing again. God doesn't want us to have any doubt in our mind that his son, Jesus, is fully God, fully divine. Even those in the first century that heard him take this name knew exactly what he was doing. So, you see what's happening here is that Jesus knows everything that's going on, and he's saying, I am God. <laughs> you know, if you ever to come over to my house, my favorite place in my house is my back screened-in porch. I love my screened-in porch on the back of my house, especially when the fall happens, and not the rain, but, you know, the temperatures that we've had the last few days. It's so fun to be on that back porch. There with my family, we eat a lot of meals out there as much as we can throughout the year, I like to study back there, pray back there. Uh, I love that. That's my favorite place in the house. And one of the reasons that makes it fun is because we got so many animals in our neighborhood, so many birds. And one day when I was sitting on the back of my porch, I heard, uh, actually we were with some friends, I heard birds chirping and going off like I hadn't heard before. And I thought, what, what in the world is going on? Jenny, do you hear this? And she's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's weird. So we decided, our friends were leaving, and so we actually uh, walked them out to their car and went out in our driveway, and Jenny got further, closer to the mailbox than I did. I was kind of still back on the, further back on the driveway, and the closer she got to the mailbox, which is about halfway on her driveway, she looked over, she said, Dave, come look at this. And I walked over to where she was, and I looked at our neighbor's house, and on the top of their chimney was an eagle. And it was just standing on the top of that chimney, just chest bowed out. And all these little birds were flying around this eagle and literally smashing into this eagle. They were, they were just hitting this eagle. And it was just standing there as if nothing was bothering it at all. And then all of a sudden, it jumped off the chimney and spread its wings and just started flying and swooped down right over our heads. And those little birds were like, nah, 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 you know, trying to chase this thing. That eagle was not going to be deterred from doing anything and everything it wanted to do, right? Jesus is here and there is a militia of 200. And he is not going to be deterred from doing everything and anything that he wants to do. It didn't matter if they had swords, torches. didn't matter if they were outnumbered. 10 to 1, 15 to 1. He was going to the cross. And they couldn't change that, and they didn't want to. It's just they had no idea what he was actually doing. He is in absolute control. He knows everything that's going on. And he is willingly giving himself to it all. And Peter sees this going on. Look at verse 10. You know what Peter does, right? You know, he gets all confident all of a sudden. Maybe it's because legitimately he just saw this crowd, this militia, like, fall down. Maybe. I don't know. We'll get to that later. But look what Peter does. No doubt he's nervous and jumpy because that's Peter. And he takes out his sword. And, and what does he do? 
He swings it at a guard, Malchus, and he cuts off his ear. Now, let me just tell you why the Bible says that and why the Bible tells us that is his right ear. Because Peter missed. <laughs> he pulled out his sword and he swung and he missed the guy and barely cut off his ear. He was swinging for a death blow and it didn't work. It's just another example of Peter not knowing what in the world he's doing with his life and he's just all over the place. And Jesus heals the man and restores Malchus's ear. Well, that's the missing ear. It gets restored. Now let's look at the, at the cup. Let's dive into that because if we're going to understand this passage, we can't just get a sense of the missing ear that was restored. We've got to think about this empty cup. You see, in the Bible, the cup is connected to judgment. The cup is connected to suffering. The cup is connected to punishment. It's connected to justice. So when the Bible talks about a cup, it's thinking about all those things, suffering, punishment, justice. You know, in the ancient world, criminals were executed by drinking some poison, right? Their punishment was meted out because they had to drink this cup of poison. If you've watched other TV shows that are filmed based on facts and stories from a long time ago, you'll see this. Remember Nehemiah in the Old Testament? He was the king's cupbearer. He was the guy that had to taste test everything to make sure it wasn't poison. How would you like that job? How do you get that? Well, this guy is super resistant to poison, so we're going to let him drink this. I mean, how, how do you get that job? I guess I need to do some more research. I have no idea. But the point is, the cup is connected to all these things. And in particular, it's connected to God's wrath. It's connected to God's wrath. So we've got to think about that. That's not always a fun subject to think about. Well, let's try to think about it just for a few moments. You see, God's wrath is not like our hatred and our wrath. It's not like ours at all. We oftentimes hate things and get mad at things in order to protect ourselves. You ever notice that? John Paul and I were talking about this this week, and he was like, yeah, Dave. He's like, don't you realize that whenever some car pulls out in front of you, you get really mad at them because they stopped you from doing what you wanted to do? We oftentimes get angry and upset and we hate things because of selfish reasons, what we think it does to us, because it stops what we wanted from happening. Everything is often about us with our emotions, not with God. God's wrath is not emotional. It's not an outburst. God's wrath is not him being cranky. Let me tell you what God's wrath is. God's wrath is his settled opposition to evil. It's his settled opposition to injustice. It's his settled opposition to everything that destroys us. It's his settled opposition to us using things to destroy ourselves. He is adamantly opposed to that. He is adamantly opposed to sin, adamantly opposed to these things that we use to destroy ourselves. You see, God's wrath is actually an expression of his love. 
God is really upset at what will destroy us, what will destroy the world. And what that means is that his wrath is the guarantee that everything will be put right. We need a God who is a God of wrath. We need that because without it, we have no hope. We have to have someone that has the power and the authority and the right to address injustice and sin and have the power to say it's wrong and to remove it. We need that. We need someone that loves us enough to say, Dave, you've got to stop doing that. It's killing you. Stop doing that. It's shrinking your soul. Stop doing that. It's making you less than how I created you to be. You're not even acting like a human being. We need a God of wrath. We need it. And we need to understand that his wrath is not like ours at all. And that's good. And the other thing we need to understand with this is we need to understand our own responsibility. I know I'm moving through this quickly, but if you have more questions, come up to me after. I'll be happy to sit down with you. You see, we need to remember, we need to take in, we need to honestly own our responsibility because it's not simply that we resist God. It's not simply that we don't like God or we try to keep him at arm's length. The Bible talks about the reality that deep down, deep, deep down, we are really, really mad, deep down mad at God. And deep down, we are really opposed to God. And I'll suggest this to you. I don't think that we will ever understand ourselves until we come to grips with this. I don't think you'll ever fully understand who you are and what you're about until you, until, until we come to grips with this deep down opposition to God. It's greater than just resisting. It's greater than just trying to stiff arm him. There's something much more. You see, our heart hates everything and anything that says that it can't be boss. Our hearts want to be the boss. Our hearts want to serve self. And because of that, we want a God we can control. We want a God that we can bargain with. We want a God that we can put in our debt. We want a God that we can use. And you see, rebellion is so, so deep. It's why we do things that we're not supposed to do, just because we simply don't want to do them. How many times have you said, like me, I'm not looking for a number, how many times do we say, you know what, I know I'm supposed to do that, but can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. How many times is that like an instinct? When we were on vacation in uh, Asheville in August, you know, walking around downtown Asheville, you got all these uh, uh, walking, I don't, I don't even remember what you, what you call them, but you know where you press the button and it tells you when you can walk or not? My family was getting so frustrated with me because it would say, time to walk, and I was already gone. Like, I'm not listening to that thing. I know when traffic's coming and when it's not, and I can look at the red lights and determine when it's green here and red over there. It's not going to tell me when I can walk. My kids were even getting annoyed at me for that. 
I mean, how many, how easy is it for us just to think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, I'm going to do the opposite. It's because we have this deep down, we have this deep down opposition to God. Because we don't want anything telling us that we can't be boss. We certainly don't want to think God is that way. We want him to serve us. We want to tell him what to do. See, this is why this is so important. Remember, Jesus sees his mission through the metaphor of drinking a cup of God's wrath. You know why it's important that we have God's wrath and our deep opposition to God? Do you know why that's so important? And Jesus is willing to drink that cup? Do you know why that's so important? Let me tell you another illustration, another story. This is borrowed. I'm sure this has been through the rinse cycle and morphed and changed over the years. It's not mine, okay? But it's so good. Why do we need these things together? God's wrath and our responsibility, our deep down opposition to God. Why is this so important? Look, If you had a bonfire and you were standing next to your best friend and y'all were just talking about life and enjoying hanging out, being with other people that are there, if you were standing with your best friend, bonfire's going on, he says, you know what, I really love you. And then he runs and jumps into the fire. You know what you're going to think? That guy just said he loves me. Why is he doing that? What was he drinking? You're going to think this guy's a little weird. This is a little crazy. Why would he do that? But if your house was burning down and your best friend was right there and you had a child inside your house that was burning down and your best friend said, Dave, or whatever your name is, I love you, and he runs back into the house and rescues my son or my daughter and dies in the process, I'm going to think that person really loves me. You see, if Jesus just died, and it's not because of any wrath or anything that's, that we have done, if there's not this deep opposition to God, and if God's wrath isn't real, if Jesus just died without any wrath, without any culpability, deep culpability on our part, we wouldn't think he really loves us. We would just think, huh, that's strange. But if God's wrath is real, and our deep down opposition is real, and if Jesus is willing to drink that cup of wrath as a substitute for us, he's gone into the burning house. And he has saved us. And he is willing to endure the heat and all that God's wrath means so that we would be redeemed. That's amazing love. It's amazing grace. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all, right? And as the landing gear is out, here's where we're ending. Look at what Jesus says to Peter. Look at what he says. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Remember, Peter had just swung his sword, right? He just tried to do something monumental to show his great love for his Savior. And he really messed up. Jesus has washed his feet not too many hours before. 
oh yeah, but at that time he was arguing about who was the greatest. Then Jesus led the disciples into the garden in the Gethsemane where, they were, where he was praying to his father. And, and that's where Peter was um, praying or uh, sleeping. He had been told not too long ago, Peter, you're going to deny me. And he said, no, I'll never do that. I will never do that, Jesus. Just a few hours from this, he does it. Here's Peter, all over the place. Maybe you can relate. One moment, professing faith, acknowledging who God is and who Jesus is and who the Spirit is and what Jesus is going to do. And the next moment, denying him. And Jesus didn't say to the militia, hey, why don't you all take this guy, the one that just swung the sword and cut off Malchus' ear, why don't you just take him? He is out of control. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He looks at Peter and he says, "Shall, shall I not drink the cup, Peter? He's saying, Peter, do you know the gospel? He's saying, Peter, the cup, wrath, God's wrath, God's judgment, I'm going to drink it for you, for my people. He's telling Peter the gospel. He's saying, Peter, this is the very reason why I'm going to the cross. Don't try to stop me. I'm going to go and redeem my people. Can you imagine how that would have affected Peter? It should make him understand that there's no amount of obedience that we can give to earn God's love or to keep it. It should remind Peter and us that there's no amount of disobedience that can negate Jesus' love for us. And it should remind us that there is no level of suffering that's too great for Jesus to save people like you and me. Remember this statement? We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. And we are more loved than we ever dared to dream. That's good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in this intense moment that you were still preaching the good news to people like us who are so much like Peter. Would you help us to remember as we go through our Uh, schedules, our callings, our responsibilities this week, that you drank the cup so that we get the cup of blessing. In your name we pray, amen.